Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Not So Rare podcast. This is Taylor Lewis here with Liz Beauvais. And today we're going to talk about a topic that I think a lot of us can relate to. And I think that our physicians can also kind of get some inside pointers and scoop about kind of what our perspective is. So this is going to be focused on what we wish doctors knew from just our overall experience. Hi, everyone. Before we get started, one thing we'd like to make sure you're aware of is there is a way that you can subscribe to our podcast right in either Apple Podcasts or within Spotify. This is probably the best way that you can find our find our content every week where you don't have to go searching for it. I know I use Apple Podcasts and there's a, a button at the top with three little dots. Just click on that and then you can subscribe that way. You can also set it to auto download if you're someone that doesn't like to use your data and listening listening to our podcast while you're traveling. So our first kind of question to kick things off today to Liz is tell me about your experiences and we can start wherever you feel comfortable with this, but what is something you wish the doctors knew from your perspective? I am really interested about today's topic, mostly because we focus a lot on our, our mental health, our self-care, how we really take care of ourselves, but we haven't really talked about how we're feeling in the exam room, like what things that are going on in the exam room that maybe add some anxiety or just are a little bit awkward, especially if you're looking back at it after the fact. I think for me, it always, I'm always put off a little bit when there's more people in the room than I expect. So when I go into a doctor's office, I usually expect it's either me or if I bring someone with me, it's that person and the doctor and maybe a nurse. Um, but I think that many rare disease patients will understand is sometimes there's other people in our rooms now. Sometimes there's researchers, there's other doctors, there's people that they're training, there's, if you go to a teaching hospital, there's probably residents and interns, a whole slew of people that sometimes come into the room. And I know for me as a, an adult, I often go to these appointments by myself. So sometimes it feels like I'm almost like overtaken by these extra people that just walk into the room. Yeah. And I think like a big part of that too is the overwhelming feeling of I know we're getting in a little bit to mental health in a second here, but in terms of like how that feels, you're already anxious for this appointment. You're already like kind of hesitant about the day and what's going to happen. And then you're the one sitting on like the hospital bed, looking up at like four or five staff members and, and they're all talking about you in a way where of course they're there to help you. And of course they're doing their jobs, but it can feel a bit overwhelming. And I think too, depending on what your disease is or how it impacts you, sometimes things just hurt weird and there's awkward conversations you have to have about what hurts or why it hurts or when it hurts. And so I think that there's also that aspect of, well, these people are new. They don't really know me. Are they just going to look at me like I'm just sitting here complaining? Especially with a rare disease patient, you probably have had multiple doctors who didn't quite take you seriously until you found your specialist. So now you're working with someone that's completely new to your case. And it's almost like you're starting over trying to explain to them everything that's happened in your life up until that point. Also, I think something that I really struggled with towards the beginning um, is the trust factor of like, 
actually, once you get to these specialists and you're on this big journey and you're going through all these doctors, it takes a lot to trust that doctor that you're referred to. And I know like a lot of people have the mentality of immediately trusting a doctor. And I think that's like a very standard concept that people have when they go. But for a rare disease patient, we have been used to the doctors being wrong, that almost having a doctor that's treating you properly is foreign in the beginning. And I almost feel like with my rare disease doctors, they sort of feel like extended family at some point, like after you get beyond that trust factor, they're really can be a lot of open communication and there really is a relationship there. So having another person, whether they're supposed to be there or they're just learning or they're just brought in for the day, having that other person there sort of breaks that trust that you've worked really hard to build up. Can you tell me like from your perspective, what, what makes it feel like the trust is being broken? I think sometimes it almost feels like you're back to being the person that is interesting or the person who is fascinating. And I know as rare disease patients, we've probably all been there where someone's just really interested to learn about your case. It's new to them. And I can understand the interest and the excitement, but at the same time, it's also the fact that you are a patient, you're a real person, you have a treatment plan or you're working on a treatment plan. So bringing in someone new sort of deters that a little bit where part of your conversation almost just is going back to going through your history. Yeah, that's a really good point. Something too that kind of came to mind as we're talking, I can just think as like a teen in the hospital room with all of these clinicians when I had that night when I got to Stanford and I saw like eight to 10 doctors that night. And granted, this was the middle of the night. So 3 a.m., dermatologist comes in and does a full body examination. And as a 17 year old, I'm going to be honest, this was incredibly uncomfortable to me because it wasn't like, okay, we're going to check here, here, and here. It was like, take off your clothes. Like we have to check absolutely everywhere. And it felt so invasive. And it was like from that night. And I know that they're just doing their job, but I think that when you're working with teenagers, got to be mindful of that. I can exactly know what you're going through with that scenario. Probably. Um, I will say by the time I saw a dermatologist, it wasn't that I was admitted in a hospital. It was part of a larger clinic setting. And, and again, I know we've talked about this a lot. We're in pediatrics. Um, so dermatologists are not quite used to an adult coming in to their, to their room when they're a pediatric dermatologist. And I just remember this awkward conversation of him going down his list of things that he knew he had to do. And he looks at me and he's like, so I'm supposed to do a full body exam. Do you want someone in here when that happens? And I just kind of look at him and I was like, does it have to happen? Like, do we really have to do this? Because I really don't think I need this. You clearly are uncomfortable in this situation. And he laughed and he agreed. He's like, yeah, let's just skip this. I was so thankful I didn't have to go through that because of how, and not that it's invasive, but from a personal level, it is, especially as a female and in your case, a teenager female, it, it's a lot to have to go through a full body dermatology exam. Yeah. So much just, and I remember too, they had asked like, 
do you want your mom to be in the room for it? And I'm thinking, I'm 17 years old. Not really. Like, no, I don't want my mom in the room. I barely want you in the room, you know, like it just felt, you know, it was one of those things where I think it could have been handled a little bit differently. I completely understand what their purpose is and they literally have to check all nooks and crannies, but, um, not my favorite experience. One thing that I think, and I know Taylor, you and I have talked a lot about too, is as a female, um, we're on medications where you really should not be pregnant when you're on the medicine. Um, it could really harm both yourself and the baby. And so I do feel like there's so many periodic pregnancy checks. I think there was one week where I had three pregnancy checks within one week. And I literally, for the third time, looked at the nurse who told me I had to do it. And I was like, can't you just use the results from yesterday? Like I literally just did this. Um, And I understand that they need to check before they do certain procedures or they want to make sure everything is still as it was. But sometimes, sometimes it's a lot to have to do three, three pregnancy checks in one week. Yeah. And I think it's something too, that is really hard for somebody who can't have children to get asked if you're pregnant all the time, because we take so many precautions to not be pregnant. And sometimes when we get these tests, it's almost kind of like upsetting in a way of like, I know that I won't ever see a positive pregnancy test. And if I do see a positive pregnancy test, it's not good. Like it's associated with a bad thing. And so just the aspect of like, knowing that that's just like, I don't know. There's no emotional like level of happiness I can gain from taking one of those. And that's like a big part of acceptance. I think that's definitely a part of acceptance. I think there's also this factor of, I literally did this two days ago. I'm telling you nothing has happened. I, I have birth control. Like there's literally no reason why you need to be doing this. Um, and so I, I understand the the need to double check to make sure that they're doing every precaution possible. But as a patient, sometimes it feels like they're just not listening to you when they make you do something that you know the answer is going to be what you think it is. And from like a healthcare perspective too, like I completely understand protocol. Like most drug companies make them do that, especially the medication we're on. But like from the patient perspective, I think Liz, like you're spot on. I just think that sometimes there's procedures that we have to do that you, that there is that emotional aspect to it, that it's really hard as a patient to have to keep going through and doing that. Like we understand why, but it's not as easy as a, let's just do a test when you're the patient involved in the process. I'm thinking of kind of some other experiences too of being a teenager. And this is something too, along that subject that I think is important for people to know is asking certain questions with mom or dad parent out of the room. And not to say, you know, Taylor was up to no good, but the drinking and the um, practicing safe sex. And there's just certain questions that as a teenager, You don't want your parents in the room. And quite honestly, it's not always appropriate. And they'll ask you, they'll kind of ask you the question before removing your parents from the room, which seems counterintuitive. Well, and I also wonder how many young individuals answer those questions completely 
correctly when there's someone else in the room or even as an adult being asked those questions with a friend or someone else there with you. Some of those are very personal life choice questions and it doesn't always equate to wanting the person that you brought with you because they're the ride you had from school that day needing to even know the answer to them. Yeah, that was actually a big reason why I went alone to a lot of my appointments my freshman and sophomore year of college because I just didn't want things to get too personal. And I think too, even as an adult, we we still get those questions. Um, I will say depending on if I'm in pediatric care or adult care, the questions are a little bit different. But I, I still, you get the question of, do you drink? And the answer is, well, maybe I have a glass of wine with dinner every once in a while. Is that drinking? Like, what do you define as that? And it usually starts a much bigger conversation than I think the nurse ever wanted to like have an answer to. She just wanted to fill in the form. There's such a spectrum with that too, right? Like, are you having a glass of wine once a week? Or are you having, you know, six glasses a day? But I think there's something that really just makes me cringe every time I'm at the doctor's and this is not to get down on anyone, but I think this is something that could seriously improve if it's just done differently. But the screener questions as a mental health professional, I just have so many issues with the way that they ask these questions. So in terms of the domestic violence questions, they'll ask me with my partner in the room. And I'm not sure who would answer that honestly with you know, thank goodness Alex has never done that and is super supportive and loving, but to a couple that isn't like, are they asking it that way? Like seriously? I also think it's interesting when you get those questions and when you don't, I only ever see those questions on my annual physical with my like primary care doctor. And I've probably only had a couple throughout like the past couple of years. Um, just because I feel like I see doctors very frequently, they'll the need of an annual physical sometimes is not quite as much as a need for all the specialist appointments. So I think that there's one, a better way to ask those questions, but I think that there's also a better time to ask them as well, as opposed to it just being lumped into the, the standard annual well visit that you might have. I truly think like a written portion of those questions would be much better completed and probably more honest Also, the questions that they always ask, like any thoughts of self-harm or suicide and the way they approach it is like they're almost like laughing. And I think it's out of being uncomfortable. This is something, you know, we have to ask everybody. And and it's like approaching it that way for somebody that would feel that way is almost like they're not validating how real that is to somebody. And I think that they can so easily prevent something bad from happening if they ask it in a compassionate and empathetic way, because people do feel that way. I also feel like maybe even embedding those questions into the actual exam itself, as opposed to it being the the nurse that's bringing you back, or in my case, I, they come through the app and before I'm even like in the doctor's office. And it's literally on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about this? I think that if they try to embed them as part of the actual physical exam or have the doctor phrase them in normal conversation, they probably would get a whole lot more information and a lot better perspective on a patient than just going through the through the through the boxes on their checklist. 
For sure. Cause it goes like, what medications are you on? It's like, blah, 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 you know? Um, and it's just run through the system as they're checking me in. And I think like, I don't open up until my doctor's in the room about anything. Typically I just, I literally hand them my medication list. I tell them nothing's changed, even if something's changed. Right. Like I just try and like make things easy on them. Cause they seem really rushed. They have very difficult jobs, nurses and oncology, hematology units. So um, very appreciative for all the work they do do. But I think that those questions just deserve to be approached differently. I think you raise a good point because I thought I was the only one who didn't talk very much to those nurses when they take you back. I feel like even times when I've tried to talk to them, they didn't really have time to go into it. So I, I felt like I was just wasting my time trying to say why something may or may not hurt or you relay it. And then you have to relay it again because they don't necessarily have time to communicate. So, yeah, so that's kind of something I've been thinking of, um, other situations that you can think of anything come to mind. So I know that for my exams, there is a portion of it may be affecting your GI tract or even, even like for us, um, some of the medication we've been on in the past might might tend to cause ovarian cysts. So there's a lot of like physical exam pieces to my exam. And I remember the first time I went from just being a patient to also being a patient of the research side, they did have a researcher in the room and it was a guy. And that was the first time that a guy was in my room during some of these exams. There's a, there's a part of the physical exam where you do feel slightly exposed. There's a, a part that it does feel very private and so for me, even just that physical exam, depending on who's in the room or if I feel bloated that day, or if I feel like I just don't feel great, that part itself can be embarrassing to a patient. Yeah. Something I think my doctors have done really well and is approach as well, like weight gain or weight loss in a way that isn't upsetting to myself because with this disease, if I, I literally could gain 10 pounds in a day of just bloating in my stomach from the disease, my water retention, like it is unreal. So it's like, I could go there one day, just not feel good about myself. And, you know, two days later it's gone, but they approach it in a way of almost just like letting it be. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And the whole the whole scale scenario going into doctor's appointments can be very upsetting. I know there's a lot of articles out there right now of, is that really needed for every single appointment? And I, I think that unfortunately for some of the medication Taylor and I are on, um, they do need to sort of keep track of that, especially since they're newer, they need to understand what it is doing to your body. But it is really bizarre with our disease, how frequently our weight can change without us ever even doing or changing anything. It's actually something this year, um, probably six months ago, as I was kind of approaching this with my therapy therapist, I threw away my scale at my house and I ended up just, I use my medical appointments just as like check-in to see how I'm doing. And it's not like I'm like, gaining 30 pounds overnight. Like, you know, like it's staying within a range that's healthy and I feel just much more at peace instead of feeling like, oh my God, I'm so bloated, weighing yourself, seeing you're up 10 pounds. And then two days later, it's gone. It's just this vicious cycle that's unhealthy and something that wasn't 
contributing anything good to myself other than knowing like, oh, I'm having a flare right now. You know, I'm a little bit heavier than normal. That is really good advice. Um, I used to probably weigh myself, if not every day, at least every week. And I've started to realize that like, even if I did do that, it's going to be different when I go to the doctor's office anyways. And whether it's heavier or lighter at the doctor's office, that added a little little bit of anxiety of like, oh my gosh, did I just gain five pounds? Or when in reality, it's probably the clothes you're wearing. It's probably the time of the day, the scale calibration between your scale and the doctor's scale, especially if you're someone that goes to the doctors as frequently as Taylor and I, um, being able to just rely on the scales of the doctors is huge for your mental health. Yeah. Because I just got to a point where I was like, this isn't, what am I measuring? Like, am I, what am I trying to prove to myself? Oh, that I'm not having a flare right now. Like it just doesn't like, we know this disease impacts that we know that we, it varies literally daily. And I just got to the point where I was just so done with it that I was like, okay, like I'm feeling more unhealthy by having this negative mental health image of myself versus, you know, understanding that I'm, I have periods of time too, where I feel like I can eat more on my medication or I don't feel like I could eat at all on my medication. So it's like just finding that balance for me has been really empowering. And I think that it's been great that that hasn't been something that is so like prominent in my appointments. So as we're, as we're looking back at what we've been talking about, there's been a couple, couple of themes that we've kind of brought out and a lot of them do relate to how you be yourself and how you're concerned about yourself when you're in your doctor's appointments. And I, I do think it's very difficult to try to get that communication over to your doctor of if something's uncomfortable or you really don't agree with anything. I don't know, Taylor, if you've had any good success along those lines of how to make it a little bit more comfortable with your doctor's appointments. I would say my doctor now, she's wonderful. And I would say like, I have more than like a typical doctor patient relationship. Like it doesn't feel like that. And I feel like I can be open with her. I feel like I can, you know, discuss whatever's going on in life. But as like before I had that relationship with her, I think that just ways that you can improve that is to speak up when something doesn't feel right. Speak up if it's not serving you because truly doctors work when they know what we're experiencing. And the only way they can really know that other than diagnostic labs and, you know, x-ray is our perception of how we're doing. And that's a huge thing that's helped me find my medication balance of what dosage is right for me by communicating that to them. And I was a pretty passive teenager in terms of like speaking up. I was a pretty quiet person, um, pretty like just kind of like, okay, putting the trust in doctor's hands. But I think that it's just so important for us to, to really just let them know how we are doing. I think what I've learned over the last few years, as I've sort of seen the evolution of healthcare in my life is there really is a large patient component. The doctors, especially those that are researching our diseases, really want to know how things are feeling, how things are changing, what makes things better, what makes things worse. Um, there's not that many patients in each rare disease category 
And so it's hard for them to know how this treatment will interact with you and your body because there's just not a lot of data out there. And so I've worked to get over my quietness in the doctor's office. Um, I, I think probably if my doctor looked at the first time I met her versus this past appointment, like there's a drastic change in how, how talkative I am in those appointments, but they're not going to know something's wrong unless you talk about it. And if they're focused their life on your rare disease, they're also not going to look at you like you're, you're just complaining because they know that there's something bigger going on and they're trying to figure out what they can do to help with that. My doctor asks really awesome and important questions in terms of quality of life of like, she'll ask me how active I'm being, what kind of activity I'm able to do. And that has drastically changed throughout the years. Like I talked about um, in the previous episode, just about like quitting tennis and transitioning things. So that has changed so much that she's been able to like know me and know kind of like what's important to me and kind of base a scale on how I'm doing based on what I have been doing for myself. If that makes sense. And I think that too, in order for her to be able to know the impact on your life, you have to be willing to share what's going on in your life outside of mere medical stuff. I, I feel like when I go into my specialist appointments, there's probably a good third of the appointment that's just devoted to what's going on in my life and where I have struggles in that, as opposed to the strictly this hurts or that hurts, or this doesn't feel right. Because I think that that is kind of going along to our comments about the mental health questionnaires. That's really where they're able to see what might be having a bigger impact or where you might need a little bit more support. They know a lot of resources too, in terms of how to kind of like function better outside of the office too. And I guess the big piece of this is like, be open and honest with them in order to almost like receive the care that we want to receive. Cause sometimes I think when you're in those hospitals, things can be very clinical, but to let them know like what's uncomfortable or what is comfortable is really important. And your ability to kind of not dread going there. I feel like it's been, it's been a journey to get from, I'm anxious going into the car, driving into the city, sitting in this waiting room to, okay, well, I'm going to go see, see this doctor this week. And we're probably going to talk about this. Let me prepare for that. I think they're never going to fully get over the anxiety of getting into the doctor and wondering what's going to happen. But having been through the experiences enough, I can out better prepare myself so it's not as uncomfortable when I'm sitting in that room. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast today. I think that it's something that almost I felt a little bit uncomfortable at first of like kind of calling doctors out because that's not what I wanted to do here. And I don't think that's what obviously we did, but um that just kind of shows how difficult it is to speak up sometimes. And real fast before we go, I just want to do another little plug for our Instagram account. Look for us. We are not so rare podcast. Um, it's the same logo as what we have for our podcast logo. We really love to hear from you and you'll be able to see some little extra content sometimes throughout the week of what's going on in our lives or what makes us um, feel a little bit happier as we're living with a rare disease. I just want to thank everybody for listening. And this has been the Not So Rare Podcast.